0: I'm Talmage Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing David Stewart, one of our nation's top historians, about his new book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, which came out February 9, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas, on February 23, 2021. Enjoy. We're glad to welcome everybody to our program with David Stewart to talk about his wonderful new biography of George Washington. As I said earlier, I, I first met David uh, about 50, about. 10 years ago or so, when his Aaron Burr book came out, because a friend, Walker Friedman, who's on, gave it to me for Christmas, and I looked at David's history and I said, my gosh, this is who I wanna grow up and be like, because David was, it was a, a tip-top uh, lawyer in Washington, D.C., graduate of Yale Law School, clerk for Lewis Powell on the United States Supreme Court, uh, argued two cases to the U.S. Supreme Court, one against Ken Starr, just an A plus uh, highly regarded uh, lawyer. But then he had an epiphany 15 years ago. He said, what I really want to be is a historian and uh, a very talented one, obviously uh, immediately Simon and Schuster signed him to a contract. His first book was on the uh, Constitutional Convention of 1787. His second book was on the impeachment trial of uh, Andrew Johnson, and David's one of the country's leading authorities on impeachment. Whenever that subject comes up, you'll probably see him on television. His third book was on the treason trial of Aaron Burr, presided over by John Marshall. Uh, His fourth book was on James Madison, and his newest uh, book, which uh, came out earlier this month, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, in addition, David has written three wonderful historical novels: one involving Abe Lincoln, one involving Woodrow Wilson, and one involving Babe Ruth. David lives in Maryland. Uh, I regard him as a very close friend. Please welcome David Stewart. David, you want to say hi to the crowd and glad to be with <laughs> all these Texas folks. Although we have people from the East Coast and all over the place, thank you all for coming well, out. It was a great
1: honor to be here.
0: Well, great. Let's start. David, with kind of an obvious question, I mean, obviously hundreds, if not thousands of books have been written on uh, George Washington uh, before you decided to pursue yours, and your book zeroes in on, on just uh, an, an angle, not a full uh, cradle to grave, but a specific angle, and that was uh, his mastery of politics. And so what led to your epiphany that this was an an angle on him that really had not been sufficiently explored and and needed to be uh, developed?
1: You know, he's, uh, there was one fact about Washington. And, you know, I had done books on the founding era and I just felt like I'd sort of been walking around the big subject, which was Washington. You know, these other guys are really interesting and, Wonderfully talented, but, you know, he was the guy who made it all happen. And it just felt like I was missing, you know, the central drama. And I got uh, quite amused by a fact which others have noted, which is he won these four key elections in his life uh, when he was elected uh, uh, commander in chief of the Continental Army by Congress. He was elected um, president of the Constitutional Convention, and he was elected president, of course, twice. Um, But the thing that is astonishing is he was elected unanimously all four times. And that was no more uh, 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 common in the 18th century than it is today. I mean, imagine anybody getting elected unanimously to much of anything right now. Uh, And I wanted to understand that. Uh, there's been a lot of writing about his military career um, and it just seemed to me that you don't, you don't have that record, that political record. Um, You don't get that with box tops. You know, you, you have to be good at being a politician. And so I wanted to understand how he did it, how he came to do it. And it, turned out to be a really interesting story of a guy who, you know, we tend to think of as sort of having enjoyed effortless superiority. You know, he was tall. Um, he, he looked good on a horse. Uh, he married a rich woman. I mean, of course he turned out great. It wasn't like that at all. Um, he really worked incredibly hard. He was, uh, you know, up before everybody else and he worked longer than everybody else. And he, um, was relentlessly self-critical and he really worked hard to improve himself always. Uh, And I just thought that was a fascinating story because as a young man, he was not on the road to success. (laughs) He he had some bad innings and uh, he he pulled himself out of the ditch and figured out uh, what he had to do better and then did it. In fact, that's how you open your book
0: was uh, this realization that the path he's on is is not really working very well, and he made the courageous decision that uh, to reinvent himself. So, so talk about why that
1: was so important. That, you, that that's how you wanted to start the book. Well, again, it's it, to try to understand him as a person, uh, and not just as this marble figure, which is sort of how we all think of him. Um, and he did uh, have a, a, a bad time in the French and Indian War. Um, you can read some very misleading stuff about how he was a great hero and he was always crazy brave in battle and everybody was always amazed that he survived because he was reckless. But the fact is, he, he just kept losing. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, had, he had nothing but unsuccess um, as a military leader for three years, and that was really interesting to me because, again, we think of this man as gliding into power, as, you know, a, 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 a man of sort of automatic success, and it wasn't like that at all. He really, and some of it was his own fault. I mean, he Ticked off the, his superiors, um, he jumped the chain of command. He was um, uh, disrespectful, uh, and uh, by the time it, when the book opens in uh, late 1758, he's really fouled his own nest, and he's he's not going to have a military career. It's just not going to happen. Um, and he he's also terribly sick, and he I, I think he's spends a a miserable winter, and those of us who have lived through this winter maybe can identify, um, and uh, decided on a new path. And when he comes out of that winter um, of misery, uh, he's a different guy.
0: Well, one of the things that brought him out of that winter of misery and and his new path to reinvention was his decision that it's about time to get married. (laughs) and and so uh he looks around to think about who might be the best possible candidate and he seizes on uh, mary uh who he has a nine-day courtship with nine days and then they're engaged uh and you say that whatever letters there were between George and Mary Washington, they made the mutual decision. They wanted them destroyed so that whatever they said in their private thoughts would not live for history. But to me, one of the the two most fun pages in your book, David, is when you try to speculate based on everything you know and all your research, what did they see in each other that, that swept them off their feet? And I mean, it involves historical speculation. But, it, but it's really fun. So so talk about your process. We're trying to figure out what they saw in each other that caused this instant attraction and decision to marry.
1: Well, Washington was not going to marry uh, a woman who didn't have money. Um, he needed money. He didn't have much. Um, that's another misconception we have. We think of him as this aristocratic guy born to the uh, with a silver something in his mouth. Um, he, he really didn't have much. He had some land, um, which he couldn't really afford to keep up very well. Um, so he was on the prowl. He had spent uh, four years off in the woods of Western Virginia and Western Pennsylvania uh, fighting Indians, and, and you didn't meet many eligible ladies out there. Um, <laughs> so it was not a, a good opportunity. Um, we, all of us who Study Washington, think he must have known Martha Custis somehow um, because he goes to see her in this weekend and then sees her again the next weekend and they're engaged. And, you know, he clearly was a man of determination and uh, uh, great interpersonal skills, but uh, that's pretty good. Um, She was extremely wealthy, uh, not her own family money, but she had married uh, Daniel Custis, who was a very rich man, and he died without a will, so she and their two children got everything. Uh, and he, uh, uh, Washington and she were a funny match physically. Uh, he's 6'2", slender, and best athlete anybody's ever seen in those parts, um, she's under five feet tall. Um, she's round. <laughs> That's <laughs> the best image we have of her. Um, uh, and she's attractive and she's vivacious. She's uh, a, a gracious person. And even someone as um, judgmental as Abigail Adams really liked her. Um, but uh, I do think, and you know, I, I think it's still true today, but certainly in the 18th century, Uh, marriage was uh, uh, a bargain. Uh, And, you know, he brought great potential um, and remarkable skills, although he was not terribly well-placed at the time. And she had all this money, (laughs) which was very attractive. Um, And she was skilled at the things he needed a spouse to be skilled at, at managing the plantation. Uh, she'd been the oldest of a group of children. She'd always been a manager. Um, she'd run the Custis Estates for a year, which were was a big uh, uh, administrative uh, task. And there had to be some, uh, some chemistry. Uh, and, you know, we don't know what it was, but we do know that in later years, The reports we get from third parties are that they were affectionate. Um, There's no evidence that they that I credit that they ever really strayed, Um, and you know they seem to have sought each other's company. The thing that to me speaks volumes is throughout the years of the Revolutionary War. Every winter, the army would go into winter camp, uh, which was a pretty terrible place, usually. You know, a lot of disease, a lot of uh, shivering and starving soldiers. Uh, This was not, you know, going down to the Cayman Islands. Um, And Martha would go and she would join him in camp. Uh, And, you know, she wanted to be with him. Um, And that I kind I find touching
0: Mm-hmm. Now, during this 16 year period between uh, the time he, he leaves the Virginia regiment after the French and Indian War, and then when he takes over as the head of the Continental Army uh, during the American Revolution, uh, that's when his real political career Uh, took off, and and you devote uh, a whole section of the book. He was a businessman, he was a legislator, he was a judge, he was a community leader. So during that 16-year period, Washington, who was a great listener and a great learner, as you mentioned, a lifelong learner, what was he learning about uh, the art and mastery of politics?
1: Well, I think he was learning what all of us try to learn, which is what are his strengths and how does he play to them, and what are his weaknesses and how does he cover them up or manage them. Uh, he had weaknesses. Um, uh, he had a vicious temper, um, and uh, he did not lose it often. But when he did, nobody ever forgot it. I mean, it, it, he, it had, there's a famous cabinet meeting when he was president when he basically shouted for 30 minutes and if you've ever shouted for a while you know it's tiring and you know to shout for 30 minutes is uh you, you've really lost control um he was always anxious about money and uh you know presented with a good yeah he he wasn't he was capable of sharp dealing um and uh had to watch that when he started having public responsibility uh I think he found that as a military leader, he could be reckless, and he had to control that. He developed a very consultative style, and I think that idea frames a lot of his later career, which is he tries to control his instincts. Um, he will always make up his own mind in a situation. I found, you know, he, he, you know, as president, he always wanted to know what Jefferson thought, what. Edmund Randolph thought what Hamilton thought, but you never knew who he was going to agree with, or maybe with none of them. And as a, as a soldier, it was the same thing. He cared a lot what Nathaniel Green was going to tell him, or Henry Knox, his most senior jo- uh, generals, um, and didn't always do what they said, but he wanted to hear it, and it would help him frame his own ideas. And I th- he learned to take his time. The other piece that really blew me away was his emotional accessibility. Uh, His contemporaries talked about how affable he was, which is not how we think of him. We think of him as this austere, remote figure who just commanded the room and everybody cowered, Um, which could happen, (laughs) frankly, in a big crowd that was easier for him to do. But uh, he was easy to get along with. Um, He loved the joke. and. He was modest. Uh, This is a guy who, when he, you know, the last 20 years of his life, whenever he entered a town, you know, they shot off the cannons and rang the church bells and did fireworks and illuminations in all the houses. And you could he could have gotten a big head and become very arrogant. And he never did. He was the same guy. And I think all of these factors together helped him. Um, become someone uh, of stature, which was terribly important to him, but also uh, someone who commanded trust, uh, which I concluded was his greatest gift, was that people just trusted him. Hmm.
0: Now, all our lives, we've heard about Washington's leadership of the Continental Army uh, during the famous winter at Valley Forge, from seven, December 70,
1: 1777 to June 1778. <clears throat> How bad was it? It was terrible. And, you know, it's always been dramatized, and I always want to emphasize the next two winters in Morristown, New Jersey, were just as bad. But, you know, everybody was sort of used to it by then, so it, it's never gotten the same um, buzz around it or the same attention. But, you uh, you know, they, the soldiers suffered in, 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 in incomprehensible ways. They, they did not have enough clothes. Um, you know, imagine winter in Pennsylvania. It's cold, and a lot of them didn't have shoes. Um, you know, the image we always have is the bloody footprints in the snow. Well, I read a bunch of accounts of bloody footprints in the snow. There was one officer said, you know, I can't see these soldiers without weeping. Um, they they were dying just because they were cold. Um, They had terrible diseases. Uh, Typhoid, dysentery just swept through the camp. Uh, Scabies, which sounds awful. Um, And, you know, the the medical care was essentially they'd isolate you in a tent with all the other sick people. Um, And, you know, then that was your chance to get better. So uh, very few got better. Uh, And... It was the officers wrote about how well they expected either a mutiny or mass desertion, one or the other, because they couldn't understand why the soldiers were putting up with it. Um, but they did. And a lot of it, I think, is Washington's leadership. He rode through that camp every day. He attended to every detail. Uh, you know, as a plantation manager at Mount Vernon, he had that mindset that he had to do everything. And. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, if there were horse carcasses in the pathway, he'd get them hauled out. If, you know, there were blankets needed to be passed out, he would see to it. So they understood that he was looking out for them and that mattered. And I do also think the ideals of the cause. Um, now, we're in a cynical age where the, a term like the cause sounds uh, a little hollow, but it wasn't to them. Um, they were, thought they were. Bringing something new to the new to the world into being, and uh, they laid down their lives for it. Well, as uh, as he survived,
0: and he and his troops survived, uh, obviously in time, uh, things got turned around. Uh, although uh, between 1778 and 1781, uh, and during that time, he's the head of the Continental Army. He didn't win any battles and yet he stayed on as this undisputed hero to the soldiers and the American people. So how do you remain a hero when up for three years, you go
1: without winning a battle? Yeah, a lot of it is, and I I will harken back to it because it's my theme is his political gift. Um, He always understood that he worked for Congress, that, Congress was in charge and they had trusted him with the army, but he answered to Congress. So he managed that relationship carefully. He managed his relationships with the state governors, with all of the local officials, because he needed to get grain from them or try to find out cattle or or clothes or anything uh, he was going to get for the soldiers. Uh, So he was terribly attentive to that and to his soldiers. uh, And... You know, there is an element in, I, I, I don't want to overlook it, uh, the American talent pool for military leaders was shallow. <laughs> we we didn't have, uh, you know, a, a West Point, we didn't have a whole lot of people with military skills and, and experience. And there were rivals, uh, particularly Horatio Gates, uh, basically took a run at uh, uh, bumping uh, Washington out of the commander-in-chief position, and I write about that, um, but uh, they were not of his stature and he, he was able to sustain his position. He understood early, and this is a strategic sense, uh, in the first couple of years of the war, he keeps wanting to get into big battles with the um, British, which never turn out well. And he, he figured out that actually what he had to do was survive. And keep his army together. That was how they would win the war. Um, if I can use an analogy that comes from my childhood, you know, it's not different from Poachy men in Vietnam. You know, just just hang on. These guys from across the ocean are gonna get bored with it and they're gonna find it too expensive and too painful. And at the end of the day, we outlasted them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then when the war is over uh, uh, and whenever there's a conversation about the greatness of of Washington, one of his most heroic traits was his willingness uh, to turn over power. Uh, He did it after the revolution. He obviously did it uh, by ending his presidential run at eight years. So from a historian standpoint, how important is that in, in the grand scheme of things, somebody's willingness to turn loose of power?
1: Well, it's essential in two ways. Uh, One is uh, for the country. It meant uh, we didn't have Napoleon. We didn't have Oliver Cromwell. We didn't have Julius Caesar, who won the war and then took his army into the national capital and seized power and created one-man rule. Washington believed in the cause, believed in self-government, believed in liberty. And so he... He walked away from power. He resigned from the army and went home. Now, I think he really just wanted to go home. Uh, It wasn't a, a political strategy. He was worn out and been a long war. But he won the trust, again, I'm coming back to that notion, of other Americans. And that was an essential element of his success thereafter because everyone could see, well, you can trust Washington with power because he's not mad for it. He, he doesn't mind walking away from it. And there's the wonderful anecdote that when George Third is sitting for a portrait and the painter, who's an American, actually uh, tells him about Washington resigning from the army. Uh, the king doesn't believe it. And he says, well, you know, if that's true, he's the greatest man in the world. And he obviously doesn't think it's true, but That was the reaction. Um, And again, as you point out, when he leaves the presidency, it's the same uh, reaction. And it's a wonderful uh, example to set for the nation. Uh, And it's also good for Washington. He actually wanted to leave after the first term and he had to be persuaded to stick around. Um, So it, it, it was an essential part of building uh, his reputation. Now,
0: one of the things we really haven't talked about much is he had all these wonderful political skills uh, that he developed over time, but whenever we think about essential elements for a successful politician, we think it really ought to be somebody who's a good public speaker. And who knows how to debate, and 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 uh, and yet Washington did not have that in his toolkit, as you point out. He was not comfortable with public speaking; his voice had a breathy quality to it. Uh, so, so give. How can you do what he did without and able to command a room, but really have uh, not uh, didn't have the power of rhetoric and and. You know eloquence and and, and dynamism and when the words came out of his mouth
1: well it helps to be told i <laughs> uh, i think uh he chose his words carefully uh he was always modest in his presentation uh he avoided situations where he was uncomfortable where he would for example have to debate or you know so let's say follow Patrick Henry in, in a speaking situation. He would he wouldn't do that. Um, and he understood that he was great I you know always heard this about Lyndon Johnson, great at retail politics, great at one-on-ones or small groups, could really just move everybody. But you get him in front of a group and you know he's just not as powerful. Uh So Washington developed what John Adams called uh, the gift of silence, um, which uh, John Adams never had. Um, And he understood that if he said a few words, careful words, uh, and then greeted people in a more informal way, uh, he was comfortable and he was much more effective. Uh, and that's all part of figuring out what you can do well and what, what you can't do well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in, in recent years,
0: uh, moving on to, you know, the Constitutional Convention and then his presidency, in recent years, thanks to Ron Chernow and Lynn manuel Miranda, uh, we've had a national obsession with uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was Washington's Secretary of the Treasury. And of course, Thomas Jefferson, who was Washington's Secretary of State, he's always had a huge following the magic words in the Declaration of Independence, as well as acquiring the Louisiana Purchase during his presidency. So, when those two founding father mega egos, who were also arch enemies, were in the same room with George Washington. Give us your perspective on how the personality dynamic among the three
1: of them played out. Yeah, the thing to remember, and, and I, I kind of harp on it because I, I think it's been lost through history, is is Jefferson and Hamilton worked for Washington. <laughs> he, he, he was their appointment you know, he appointed them and, you know, they reported to him and nothing they did, including Hamilton's financial plan or anything would. Jefferson was doing as a diplomat went out unless Washington had approved it uh, he managed the paper flow Jefferson writes a great memo as uh, president saying I want to do it the way Washington did he controlled everything and I'm going to do that too uh, and when they got it, it into arguments and you know their arguments, I think the musical kind of misrepresents them as sort of shouting at each other or or having at each other, which is not, I think, how it happened. I think what would happen is Jefferson would say something and then Hamilton would give a 45 minute speech (laughs) and Jefferson (laughs) would smolder. But he was never comfortable with that kind of back and forth. Um, And Washington wanted to hear from both of them. He he liked having them in the room. Uh, he could tell everybody that he was listening to both sides, which he was, and they were having their arguments in the room and not out on the street, which he much preferred. Uh, so I think he managed his uh, the, that relationship really quite brilliantly. Uh, in later years, uh, Jefferson kind of made a point of being uh, slighting, making sort of semi-snide remarks about uh, Washington's intelligence, Uh, something Hamilton never did because he knew that his career had been built on the sponsorship of Washington. Uh, But even Jefferson in in candid moments would say, well, uh, he was the great man and and we all followed him. Mm -hmm. Now,
0: during uh, his first term was one of his great uh, presidential achievements. Uh, the Compromise of 1790, uh, what exactly was that, and what was Washington's role in making that
1: deal? Yeah, it, it's a basic political bargain, um, which is pretty easy to understand. Uh, we needed a national capital, which we didn't have, and Southerners wanted to have it on the Potomac, which would be closer to them, and wanted it to be in slave country. Uh, northerners didn't want it there. Uh, wanted it much closer to them. Uh, Philadelphia was the preferred place, but of course that was a Quaker anti-slavery area. And then there was the financial problem of this massive debt we had from the Revolutionary War that had to be somehow paid off. And Hamilton had a plan for that, which the Northerners loved because they actually owned most of the debt and they would be the people getting paid. Uh, and the Southerners were less enthusiastic about and. It was clear that the deal would be to swap one for the other. Everybody gets half a loaf, uh, but nobody could put it together. They, they worked for about 18 months getting the, uh, uh, trying to get the coalition in for each half of it together. And Washington takes a hands-off approach at first, but then after it keeps not happening, suddenly his personal staff starts going to these negotiating sessions. And Washington even has an individual negotiating session himself. And they, you know, we, I think many of us know the story of this dinner that Jefferson hosts and Madison and Hamilton come and everybody figures out the deal. And I, I, I'm guessing the dinner really did happen, but uh, the deal wasn't made there. They were just working out the details. The deal was what Washington had told All of them, which is, he wanted to have Hamilton's financial plan, and he wanted the national capital on the Potomac. Um, Just happened to be across the the river from his uh, his home in Mount Vernon, and that's what happened. And it has always it it struck me that you know Hamilton got half a loaf, Jefferson got half a loaf, Washington got the whole loaf. you know that that that's a win. Yeah. Now
0: you mentioned that uh, at the end of his first term Washington was was worn out was was ready to go home uh and yet uh people uh leaned on him so hard that he finally relented and agreed to uh stay, stay for a second term and of course he won unanimously again. Uh and By most accounts, and maybe all accounts, those those were four of the most miserable years of his life. This the second term. So, uh, what happened? Uh, You know, the train kind of fell off the tracks uh, in Washington's mind during during the second second term. What what
1: happened there? Politics. Uh, You know, he the, the idealism of the cause the inspiration, and uh, that's a big word to use, but the inspiration that uh, Washington could provide personally, uh, started to wear off. And people started paying more attention to their regional interests. Um, it, it seems odd to us today, but you know, we definitely started choosing up sides between who supported the British and who supported the French and what was becoming the this 20-year-long war in Europe. Uh, And that became a terribly divisive uh, uh, situation. Um, One of my favorite moments in Washington's career is his second inaugural address when he has, again, been unanimously uh, chosen president and uh, didn't want the job. Um, And he is the crankiest new president you've ever seen. His inaugural address was four sentences long. And it basically said, I'm honored that you've elected me. I understand that you can impeach me if you don't like what I'm doing. Thank you. And he sits down. <laughs> it is the shortest inaugural address in history. And that was his feeling. But, of course, he was a man of duty. So he did his best with the job. Um, he faced uh, the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania and uh, put that down Uh and with, with a completely bloodless experience, uh, I think was very successful. Uh, he kept us out of the European war with his neutrality policy, which was critical. Um, he was not able to control the partisanship. And in his farewell address, uh, which is a wonderful document I, I recommend to everybody, he, he speaks most movingly of the dangers of partisanship. Um, and he says, look, human beings are going to be partisans. That's who we are but you can't let it get out of control. And he talks about the consequences of letting it get out of control. And it's it's actually uh, pretty deep thinking.
0: Yeah, it seems like uh, right before every inauguration, there's all this <laughs> discord between the factions and people are wanting to revert to Washington's farewell address, which addresses the subject and is absolutely timeless in his observation on, on the, 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 the damage caused by uh, serious uh, partisanship. So Washington finally, the second term ends, he's, he's, he's dealt with it, he's handled it, it's been miserable, but he's, he decides, no, I'm not, everybody wanted him to stay for a third term. He said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. He goes to Virginia and it turns out he had two and a half years left to live uh, and, and during that time, one of the main things that was going on in his own mind was wrestling with the issue of his slaves uh, on his on his property. So uh, talk about that wrestling, talk about his attitude towards slavery over his life and how it
1: culminated. Yeah, you, you, you can never avoid this, stuff. Um, and, and we shouldn't. Uh, and as a young man, until his middle years, he doesn't seem, frankly, to have seen slavery as a moral issue. Just, it was just part of his world. And at, in, the, in the war and in the Continental Army, he has black soldiers, and they change his mind. Uh, he realizes that these remarkable men who might even have been slaves themselves or might even still be slaves are out there risking their lives for his liberty and the fact that he owns them is simply indefensible and he after the war and it takes him a few years um because he's always trying to repair his financial situation he starts trying to figure out how to f- free his slaves and he's got two big the, the biggest problem is uh The nature of the slave population in Mount Vernon, more than half of them are Custis slaves. They came with Martha And they were Owned technically by the estate of her first husband And she and George as her husband had a responsibility to Maintain their value for Martha's grandchildren. She had four grandchildren Uh, She and George of course never did have uh, children of their own So He was going to have to buy them out of the estate, and that required a big wad of money, which he didn't have. Uh, He was always land poor. He'd acquired 50,000 acres out in the West. Um, He kept trying to sell it or find tenants or just some way to raise the cash, and he never could. And when he gets back to Mount Vernon after the presidency, uh, he turns to that again. Uh, He tries to rent out part of Mount Vernon, uh, just any way he can figure out to raise the funds that will allow him to to free those slaves. And of course, he wants to have enough to live comfortably. He's like the rest of the human race, Um, but it never happens. Uh, He only speaks privately about his dislike of slavery. He, He never does speak publicly. And he finally concludes that he will uh, free his own slaves, and it's more than a hundred people that he owned outright uh, in his will. And so he rewrites his will in his last year of life, just just at the la- <laughs> in the nick of time for them to free them. He leaves enough money for them to be supported so the old ones would be supported in their retirement for young ones to be educated. and. Uh, his estate does take care of those people. Their last payment in support of the Washington slaves uh, uh, happens 33 years after his death. It, Martha, though, uh, and the slaves were to be uh, freed on her death, which uh, after Washington died, she found she didn't care for that because there were all these people at Mount Vernon who kind of had a vested interest in her dying, and she found that uncomfortable, um, which you can imagine. Um, frankly, uh, masters being poisoned by slaves was a thing in the South in this time. So she does free the Washington slaves early. Uh, not many of the Custis slaves are ever freed. Uh, Martha does not. Um, she might have freed one in her will uh, But uh, one of her granddaughters does free a number of slaves, ultimately. But most of the Custis slaves uh, do not get emancipated. Um, I think Washington did it uh, as an act of personal atonement. And he writes once, uh, he hoped it would not be displeasing to his maker to do this. Uh, I don't think he wanted to face the ultimate judgment uh, without having tried. He might've hoped that this would help the nation solve the slavery issue. It obviously didn't. Um, And I think Washington was probably a hard headed enough guy that he probably didn't kid himself that his example alone was gonna lead the nation away from slavery. Now, before I ask
0: my last question, I want to uh, encourage the audience, if, if any of you have a question you'd like to ask David, uh, just uh, either uh, write it out in the in the chat box, or if you want to uh, raise your hand, I hope I can see that. But anyway, uh, go ahead and do that. But, but <clears throat> David, there's some wonderful uh, endorsements on the back of the dust jacket. Uh, John Meacham uh, uh, at the top, but uh, Nathaniel Philbrook, who's a esteemed uh, Washington biographer, uh, wrote a book called In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown. But his, his comment uh, about your book, which I certainly agree with, he says, as Stuart demonstrates time and time again, with vivid prose and a wonderful sense of pacing, Great leaders are also great learners. And in this time of division and turmoil, this is the book we need. And so you end your book, the last couple of pages, by talking about how knowing the life story of George Washington and the way he went about his political business is instructive to answer the general question, what does it take to be a master politician? So uh, from your perspective, as epitomized by the way Washington uh, conducted politics, what are those most important traits that that Washington carried that we sure could use in 2021?
1: Yeah, we've talked about some, most of them, I think, uh, humility, uh, an ability to connect with others, to listen to others. Um, He was... Uh, very talented with that uh, one. The wife of one British ambassador said he had this gift of learning what other people think without ever telling them what he thinks. Uh, and I think that's very important. And his emotional connection with people—that's, um, I think, essential um, to get them to trust you. And you know, I think we do suffer in our era from a lack of trust in government you know we've been told for a long time that government is the problem uh well you know if you really think that then blow it up but actually it's hard to have a complicated society without government and i think we need to pay attention to whether our leaders have the character and integrity that we learn to expect from Washington. And he's been the model of what a president should be. Um, and and worry a lot more about that than whether they support this issue or that issue. So, end, end of sermon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sermon.
0: Um, does anybody, I don't see any raised hands. If anybody has a question, uh, Well, here's here's a question from Harsh Agarwal. David, and I think maybe you've touched on this, but he's asking, uh, are there any common traits that you've identified in Washington that uh, align with uh, or traits shared by our other great American leaders?
1: Yeah, I think... uh I think he shared with uh, Lincoln the the desire to get the best advice possible and to think hard about it and not to be instinctive in his reactions uh, and to be open about his own emotions. Um, It may sound odd, but I'm going to say it also. I think he shared with uh, Ronald Reagan the ability... To be a political leader, to be, a, you know, make deals, be a wheeler-dealer, and nobody quite th- thinks of them that way. Uh, it's kind of a magical thing when you can do that, uh, and uh, it involves some personal qualities uh, which uh, are unusual. Uh, a lot of our wheeler-dealers, you know, you you feel like they're wheeling really and dealing, Um And, you know, Bill Clinton, you could use as an example, or uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, So uh, we we have to recognize also, and I guess it was David McCullough who said this, you know, the reason that we have, and I think I heard you say this, Tom, and sure quote this, you know, the reason we celebrate our great presidents is is there aren't that many of them. (laughs) It's a hard job and uh, the ones who who really stand out, uh, really stand out. Well, that's true. Uh, David Kent, my great
0: friend, has asked a question regarding your discussion of Washington's limited success or lack of success during the French and Indian War. He says there was an article in the Smithsonian last year saying, as he recalls, that Washington inadvertently sparked that war by starting a skirmish slash battle. What, what's your take
1: on that story? Well, it, it's chronologically true. Uh, the first conflict between the French and the British forces, and, and of course Washington is representing the British, was in, in the forest of western Pennsylvania, and uh, Washington attacked some, uh, a French uh, expedition, and... Uh, and they, they kill a, almost a dozen Frenchmen. Uh, now, France and England had been fighting wars for 100 years at that point, and they were spoiling for another one. And they don't even declare the war for two more years. But it is true, the first uh, shots fired in anger for what becomes the French and Indian War for us or the Seven Years' War for the Europeans uh, is started by George Washington. and. I don't actually fault him for that. Um, He he was doing his job. He was sent there, basically, to start a war. Uh, The royal governor of Virginia wanted him to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Uh, While we're waiting to see if others, I have a a couple of extra questions that I didn't think I'd have time for. But, but, uh, David, as you develop... uh, Washington's, uh, life story, uh, you say that before he reached age 20, he had combined a gentleman's manner with a toughness earned from surveying. He had a quiet confidence. He moved with a grace that can't be taught. He had a walk that you described as majestic, And before reaching age 20, he had become a Virginia militia major who commanded the colony's southern district. He owned over 4,000 acres in the West. And he'd written a journal about his dealing with threatening French soldiers and Indians on the American frontier that went viral around the world. So that's a perfect image and stellar accomplishments for any leader to aspire to. And Washington did it all while he was a teenager, so would you describe him as something of a leadership prodigy?
1: yeah I mean he had qualities that uh, uh, he, he he just had uh, his his physical talents um, you can't overlook them. Uh, I always love the story about Lincoln, you know, whenever he met a tall man, he would always jump out of his chair and say, let's go back to back and see, see who's taller. I mean, <laughs> talk about dominance. You know. <laughs> uh, he, he, and, and, you know, Washington, I'm sure from the age of five, you know, he was the kid who could do more, run faster, jump farther, um, climb go higher. throw silver dollars farther. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, and that breeds a confidence, That uh, creates a a, a sense of yourself, which he had, um, and he had from a young age. Uh, He was, you know, it was offset. And I think it makes him a more sympathetic figure by his appreciation for the fact that he wasn't very well educated and didn't speak as well as he wanted to and didn't come from the real elite of Virginia. Uh, and so I think he always felt a little bit like he was, uh, you know, he was faking it and he didn't want anyone to catch him. I think all of us have had those feelings, <laughs> um, and, uh, it, it, it's, it's a human reaction and it, it makes him, uh, uh, accessible, but to be honest, yeah, I mean, it is true. Uh, he had a brilliant blazing start and then that made it all the more poignant when things went bad for him. Mm -hmm. now ken malcolmson with north dallas chambers
0: one of our wonderful sponsors wants to ask david as as a historian what's your take on the removal of washington statues in multiple locations around the country
1: yeah uh i can't be coy about it i just don't understand it um you know we're, we're human beings we're not perfect uh I defy us all to think about what people will think 200 years from now about us. Um, They may think we were criminals because we ate meat, we ate animals, um, or because we did nothing about climate change, or God knows what will turn out to have been our sins. Um, But they will be there. and. You know uh he understood his his sin of slavery um but he did so many great things um i just think uh we we need to get through this this stage i I mean uh, some of you may have seen this business they're doing out in san francisco and i love san francisco but now they're taking Thomas Edison's name off of a school because he electrocuted animals. You know, there's, there's thousands of scientists around the country who are electrocuting animals right now to try to figure out uh, uh, drugs or any number of things. Uh, we have to be a little more uh, careful about, about how we reach our judgments. Right. Brian Fleming has a
0: has a question I think you've spoken to it but there is a perception that Washington was a successful businessman and and farmer and and the question is how did he have time to run a business and run a plantation while he was running the country and army for so much of his adult life
1: uh, It's a great question because he, he he actually, When he was in charge of the army and when he was president, um, Mount Vernon didn't do as well. Uh, It lacked his management skills. And every time he came at the two times he comes back from those extended periods away, uh, he's frantic because he's trying to get it back on a paying basis because it would easily slide into a non-paying basis. You know, Mount Vernon looks... Gorgeous! It's the best location in a great real estate overlooking the river. But the land wasn't that good for growing crops. It turns out, and it was it was a tough place to uh, do well in. Uh, And he had made this terrible mistake about buying uh, buying all this real estate out in the west, which he never made a dime out of. So he had issues. and, and he was very candid late in life that you know buying picking up all that western land would turn out to have been pretty stupid um, but he was always out to make a buck you know, I, you know I uh, love it that at the end of his life he he opened the distillery at Mount Vernon which very quickly be, became a real cash cow for the the operation um so he he, he was uh, uh, he was an entrepreneurial fellow well, I want
0: to close our hour by thanking David. Uh, when I closed his book after finishing it, I'm somebody who spent my whole lifetime having Abe Lincoln at the top of the mountain and Washington was in second place. But uh, after reading David's book, I said, you know what? I think it's time to move up Washington to be on the same level with Lincoln in terms of just a life worth studying, a life of accomplishment, a, a high-integrity life. And and David writes with such an elegance. Uh, It's just a fun read. There's so many eye-catching sentences and observations that uh, make for a a fun read, uh, as easy as reading uh, any fiction book, uh, as far as I was concerned. So I hope all of you have seen the the glowing review in last week's uh, Wall Street Journal about David's book. Very well-deserved. And so, David, thanks. Love your insights, love your book, and and, uh, many of our our sponsors will uh, purchase many copies of your book. And uh, we hope uh, everybody who's enjoyed this program will engage in the most important marketing tool there is, and that's word of mouth and spread the word among your colleagues about uh, how much we can learn today from the life of George Washington. So, David, thanks so much.
1: Well, thank you. I think you all probably appreciate what a treasure you have in Talmadge, who um, is just a, a, a gift to us all and his enthusiasm and interest and insights. After
0: reading David Stewart's magnificent new biography of George Washington, it moved the needle on my appreciation for him to where the father of our country is now tied for first place with Abraham Lincoln as our greatest American heroes. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.